All right. Well, I'm, uh, I started a new series last week uh, called Living as Sons and Daughters of the King. And uh, this is some material. This is stuff that we've talked about before, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring it all into focus for us so that we as a people, we take the, we've got a gospel of grace. We've got an inheritance as children of the king. We've got all of this stuff that we talk about in the Bible, but, but we want to bring it into an incredible focus so that we are able to understand what it is to live our day-to-day life as a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I think that the only thing that holds back awakening or revival or citywide transformation or any of those things is certainly not the heart of God because the heart of God's clearly outlined in Scripture where the Scripture tells us that his desire that everyone, someone say everyone, everyone should come to repentance and a knowledge of him. That's his desire. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that what? Whosoever that could believe and not perish. Amen? So it is the heart of God for communities, for entire cities, for uh, the gospel to get spread. So you have to ask yourself, is it, is it literally the fact that Satan is more powerful than God that we don't see a move of God? No, that can't be our theology. Of course not. So they only leaves one ingredient left. You got God, you got Satan. What's the other? Us. Exactly. And so God, every time there's been a move on the planet of, the, uh, of earth, it's been because God's people, their hunger has surpassed every other thing. They've been so desirous of a move of God that, that there is no longer anything in the way of what God desires to do. We remove the roadblocks, God moves. Amen? It's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And so I think what largely sets us uh, in a position where we're not seeing God do it is because we don't realize ultimately who we are and what has been afforded to us as sons and daughters of the king. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this. Now, there's so much involved in this topic and it's going to take us a while. I don't know if we'll get it all finished this fall, and I don't really care if it takes long. I won't be upset if the posters say, Son, living as sons and daughters of the king, fall of 2023, and we're still talking about it in March of 2024. It won't bother me. I'll get over it. You know, it's not a problem. But I, I really believe we need to stay here until we really begin to manifest what it is to be sons and daughters of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And before we get into any kinds of how-tos, you know, I think it's really important for us to get an in-depth understanding of the truth of our relationship to our Father and what it is to actually be adopted into a royal family and to understand that. Uh, Last week, I began talking about looking at the big picture, and we began with one verse. We began with 2 Corinthians 6, 18. It says, I will... Be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's pretty straightforward declaration of what we're talking about. So and someone says, well, we're not sons and daughters of the king. Yeah, 
Uh, it's just, this is pretty straightforward here, and it's repeated multiple times in many different ways throughout the entire scripture, especially in the New Testament, of course. And so it's pretty uh, clear that you can't argue the point or against the point that we are sons and daughters of the king. And so if we can get that big picture that we are sons and daughters of the king, then it changes everything. And I, I mentioned last week, I have all kinds of people say to me all the time that we're his loyal subjects. But remember last week I said, we're not loyal subjects. We are instead royal family. You know, and a lot of times we get it messed up. We think, oh, well, yeah, that's it. He's the king and I'm one of his loyal subjects. No, you're not. You are his royal family. Are you hearing me? There's a huge difference. There's a huge, huge difference. It's incredible how people get this all messed up, but there is an enormous difference. And then I turned you to a, a Hebrews 11, verse 39 and 40, and it says, talking with all the Old Testament saints of faith in the Old Testament, said, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together, everybody say, with us, would they be made perfect. Christ had to come, complete his work, and establish the kingdom being built on sons and daughters before anyone in the Old Testament could receive the promises of God. Despite all of their great exploits, whether it was Abraham, David, Solomon, doesn't matter. None of them received all of the promises of God until the work of Christ was completed and they could be adopted as sons along with you and I. And it gets even stronger from that. Uh, you know, I mentioned last week also that God doesn't hide things from you, he hides them for you. So in other words, God has taken this mysterious truth and he set it aside until now. And then if you read in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 21, Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the one, will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. God wants the entire earth to come into the freedom that we experience as children of God. He doesn't want the world to be held back in bondage and war, pestilence and disease. He wants it to come into liberty. And their liberty comes as the sons of God walk in everything they are. How many know if there was a worldwide global revival literally just absolute outpouring of his Holy Spirit, where literally uh, half the world's population in a week came to Christ, that everything in this earth would change. Economics would change. Everything would change. You know, you, you name an aspect of life, it would completely change, right? Uh, many historians have documented this phenomenon that when God does come into a nation or when God does come into a community, they even have a phrase they've coined for it. It's called redemption and lift, as they see a community or a people group experience the gospel and see how every aspect of their life shifts when the, the community or the group of people encounters Christ. You may even have experienced it in your own life, right? Before you knew Christ, I mean, before you knew Christ, Ryan, you were a tow truck driver, right? Christy, you were a bartender up slap shots, weren't you? Yeah. Christy, what do you know? RPN Hospice Quinny. Ryan? That's right. And uh, 
Why? Because they came to Christ, God got a hold of their lives and lifted them into having greater vision, more aspirations, greater desires. And then God leads us into that and he changes how we view ourselves and the world. And along with that comes every other aspect of redemptive lift. Are you hearing me this morning? That's just the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. So, all right, let me move on this morning. If this is true, then why do we have such a hard time with this revelation as the church? Why do we have such a hard time as Christians grabbing a hold of this? Well, it's because we've been conditioned, we've been conditioned for as long as we can remember to practice and understand that everything has to be earned. Right? I mean, just think about it. We're conditioned to earn as children. We're conditioned to earn praise and affirmation from our parents. And we do it to our children. You know, when they're really ooey and gooey, we get more expressive. And when they're more, you know, deadpan, we just set them down and talk to our friends. Right? And so they learn very early. Oh, we get, you know, affirmation from our parents. Then earning grades from teachers, you know, is the next stage in our life. And then as children... I should say as young adults or youth, earning and playing time from the coaches, earning the attention from boys and girls at school, earning approval from friends, right? You know what it's like. You guys were all there. And then, of course, as adults, earning approval from your spouse. Hopefully, you, you know, desire some approval from your spouse. <laughs> Maybe this one's even worse. Uh, earning approval from our in-laws. Hopefully, we get that as well. Amen. <laughs> And then earning a paycheck from our employer. We spend our entire lives stuck in this mode of earning, earning favor, affirmation, love, affection, value. We earn value. We, we so invest our lives, our, our lives so that other people will value us. They will value our work. They will value what we do. For men, this is often more deeply tied to our, our work. And for ladies, it's usually often tied deeply to their relationships, to their family, to their children, to their friends. Uh, and, but it, we're all in it. We're all in it together. And we get stuck in this whole process. Learn from childhood that that kind of approval, that kind of affirmation, that kind of affection... That kind of value on our life or in our lives has to be earned, has to be earned. And don't get me wrong, I mean, if you decide to stay home and say, I'm not going to show up for work on Monday and, and all the rest of it because pastor said, I don't have to earn it anymore, you're probably going to starve very quickly. I'm trying to point out to you how the world system outside of God's glorious kingdom is set to operate. And it isn't that God doesn't want us to work. It isn't. In fact, one of the words of worship in Scripture is the word work, avoda, Hebrew word. It's a, it means work, and yet it's one of the words of worship. In other words, God created us so that the very operations of our hands, the things we do, are also an act of worship unto the Lord, right? Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, right? We do it and giving glory and thanks to him, amen? And so... It's not that, that work is wrong. It's not that doing anything's wrong. It's not that contributing to the needs of others is wrong or going to a factory is wrong or any of it's bad or any of it is even counter-kingdom. That's not the point this morning. 
The point is that when we find our identity from that, when we do those things to try and earn God's favor, we're messed up. When we do it from God's favor, everything lines up perfectly. We'll still get a paycheck at the end of the week, but I gave my life at work and gave my hardest, not so that I could necessarily impress a boss or an employer or anything else, but because I'm able to do that because I know I'm loved, I'm working from the presence of my heavenly father, I already know I'm valuable, and I bring that value to my workplace, and it shifts everything in Jesus' name. Amen? That's how it works. But our penchant for earn deserve, for trying to earn everything, paralyzes us before God. It does. It paralyzes us before God and his incredible offer of grace. We honestly have a hard time. We don't know how to receive favor without having worked for it. It's so challenging for us. And so we subtly... Oops. And so we subtly, or not so subtly, trade away the one true gospel because we prefer to work for and serve as slaves or at least as employees, and not as sons. You see, when we try to find our value, our identity, uh, all of the affirmation from the things that we do, rather than from the incredible gospel of God's grace and who he made us to be, then we're actually functioning at the very best as employees of God, or, or, but usually as slaves, and not as beloved sons and daughters. Can you imagine if Prince William has to spend his entire life earning the favor of his, of his dad in order to be considered a prince? Such is ludicrous to us. He was born into royalty. He was born a prince. He didn't have to do anything to earn becoming a prince. He simply is a prince. What qualifies him to be a prince? Pedigree, nothing else, right? And so we get that. We get that in the natural but this is why it's, under, it's important for us to understand that, that God has a kingdom, and he is the king. And as his sons and daughters, we are by right sons and daughters. You don't have to earn anything. No more than Prince William had to earn his title of being prince. Do you have to earn yours? Are you beginning to understand what I'm talking about? You are a son or a daughter of the king of kings. The Lord of lords. That's who you are. Yet, the truth is, it's hard for us because we draw so much security in our life from having at least some semblance of control. Be honest. Right? We like control. I like control. Do you like control? You liars. Of course you do. Of course you do. You know? And, and we, we like to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We want to know what our schedule is. How many of you are type A personalities? Then you know exactly what I'm talking about, right, Amanda? Come on. We've got to have every duck in a row. We've got to have it all lined up. We've got to know where we're going. We've got to know what we're doing. Oh, I don't even want to talk about Christy. Oh, my word. Yeah, she's type A on a scale that the rest of the alphabet doesn't exist. <laughs> Ryan, I don't know how you do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, praise the
you know, but you understand what I'm talking about. And we can laugh about it. We have fun with it. But the reality is that we like that control. And even if we're not a type A personality, maybe we're, we're more of a relational person or whatever, but we still like to be able to know where we stand in relation to those other people. We like to know what is my position? How am I observed by them? How am I accepted by them? All of that comes and is, is as a result of not really living in the security of who we are as sons and daughters. But in order to live in that security, we have to abandon some of that endeavor, that work that we have to control things. We have to release that to him. And so earning stays popular with us because it gives us some sense of control over our lives. And so when we have that control, at least we have a sense of security that is there. And it's hard for us to simply believe that we could be secure in his everlasting love without having had to do a thing. I know being raised Catholic, it took so long for me to get this because I'm not trying to pick on Catholics here. How many raised Catholic here this morning? Let me see your hands, right? I mean, everything in my thinking was that God's grace only came to me if I did all the right stuff, right? I had to go at least monthly because I was a pretty terrible person. I had to go at least monthly to confession. Sometimes it was weekly. Had to unload all my stuff on the priest. That was embarrassing. And I don't know about you, but in our Catholic church, we didn't have any of those really fancy confessional booths like you see on TV where you go in and the, you know, it's a nice dark thing and there's a little door that the priest slides open with a screen on it, somehow distorting who's on the other side. You guys have seen those all in the movies, right? And then you go, forgive me, Father, if I have sinned. It has been three weeks since my last confession. These are all my sins. And then you name them all off. Well, that wasn't what it was like for us. You'd go into the, the, the vestibule on the side of the church, and he has a little bench set up there. And you're on one side of the bench, and he's right there on the other. Hey, what's up? You know? And, you know, you kneel down, and you confess all your sins to him. And then, then when you're done, he stands up like none of the conversation happened and asks how you're doing in school and everything else like that. And it's like, whoa, he forgets this stuff real quick, you know? Because I'd go in there, and I'd have some pretty good stories to tell in my confessional times. <laughs> but that whole culture, you know, I think I've got to do this in order to receive this, right? And, uh, and then as I advanced through that, I became an altar boy and everything else. I lived uh, in this constant state of, you know, examining myself and wondering if I, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough that maybe, just maybe, I won't have to spend any more than 10,000 years in purgatory, which, by the way, there's no mention of purgatory in Scripture. So, you know, where we get these things from, I'm not really sure. I haven't examined all of that in, in the doctrine, but this I do know, that none of that has anything to do with what the Scripture tells us. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that we are his children. You know, there's a verse in Galatians chapter 4 that I want to focus on this morning, and uh, listen to this. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave 
but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That is an incredible passage of Scripture. That is an amazing Scripture. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context about Galatians first. Galatians, you'll look in your map, you won't find a city of Galatia. Like a lot of Paul's letters were written to Christians living in a particular city like Ephesus, right? But here, he's writing to a, a, a group of people that represented uh, probably a half a dozen church or, churches or more in different communities in Asia Minor. And so he's, he's, and he's writing to this group of churches because there's a false doctrine that has already begun to develop in these churches. And this false doctrine was being promoted by a group of legalists that Paul calls, whether this was their official title or not, I don't know, but Paul calls them Judaizers. Judaizers. And these people taught that uh, Christians were still bound to and obligated to keep all of the conditions of the law. They also taught that God's promises were only for Jews and that in order for a Gentile to be able to receive the promises of God, they had to become circumcised. In other words, they had to become Jewish before they could become Christian, right? And then finally, they also taught that uh, faith in Christ alone was inadequate, that it must be added to, have added to it the observance of the law. Now, this is in direct contrast to what Paul had already been writing down and teaching and sending out to churches in Rome and many different places, that the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith, right? So the Judaizers, they attempted to discredit Paul. And so when you read the book of Galatians, one of the things you'll discover is Paul making a defense of his apostolic ministry, of why he is no less than, say, Peter or James or John. But because that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, don't listen to Paul. He's not a real apostle, right? And said, just listen to James or John. And you'll remember that, you know, Paul had to go and rebuke uh, Peter and James, right, at, in Jerusalem because they were kind of falling into some of the traps of the Judaizers. And you read in the book of Acts how Paul went and said, you can't be doing this, right? Not right. You can't layer the law on top of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in the letter of Galatians, uh, is tackling all these things. That's why Paul's letter to Galatians, I like to call it a master class piece of theology on grace. It is an incredible epistle of grace. It is an amazing book to just help you understand what God has done by grace and how because of God's grace, we are no longer under the law. Do you hear me this morning? Are you saying that the law wasn't right? No, Paul even, he, he attacks all those arguments. He's not saying that the law doesn't have merit, that the law isn't right or righteous. No, he's not saying that. But he does say and point out to us that the law, by nature of what it is, condemns because we all see that we don't measure up to it. And so Christ did not come, Paul says, to eradicate the law, to say that the law was not righteous, it wasn't right, it wasn't good. He said, no, he didn't do that. He came to fulfill the obligations of the law. 
so that by Jesus Christ giving his life, he fulfilled the obligations that you and I could never meet by being the perfect sacrificial lamb given up once for the sins of the world. So that you and I are able to come to God, not on our good works, not on our attempts to keep the law, whatever that law might be from the Ten Commandments right through to washing ceremonies in the Old Testament. No, we couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. The Bible says there's nobody righteous. Not even one could measure up. So Jesus came, gave his life on the cross. His blood sprinkled on every one of our hearts has cleansed us. And as a result of it, we, all the obligations of the law that we couldn't meet have been met in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Are you hearing me? And what does that do? It eliminates forever earned deserve. I stand here today as a blood-washed saint of God I am valuable, I am worthy, I can stand here without any shame of all the stuff I did in the past. When we first moved to Belleville, I'll be honest with you, I was nervous. It's awful close to my hometown. People knew me. I'm not kidding. I, you can ask my wife, I had some nervous feelings about coming to Belleville. I mean, just 20 minutes down the road is Napanee. And a lot of people in Napanee knew Kevin Dowling, let me tell you. Maybe, I, maybe they'd forgotten all about me and I was bigger in my own mind than I really was. But, uh, you know, I know the kind of trouble I got in. And I thought, if I come to Belleville and I'm pastoring here, somebody's going to show up on Sunday morning and they're going to yell Ichabod from the back of the church. <laughs> they're going to say, who would let that guy pastor this church? Who would ever let, you guys are off your rocker to be in the house that that guy's leading. And if it weren't for the blood of Jesus, they'd be absolutely right. But because of the blood of Christ, I don't stand here today condemned for any of that nonsense I did in my past. I stand here as a blood-washed, purified son of God who has been positioned so that he can pour his heart and his love and affection not only on me, but through me. And that people can receive, Kevin Dowling is a dead man. Kevin Dowling, the son of God, is alive. And God is able to work through that. Amen? Hallelujah. And so that is the gospel, people. So if you're here today, I, I did a funeral last Monday, and I told the people at the funeral, I said, here's the thing. I said, I, I didn't really know it was Edna Sharp that had passed away, and and uh, I said, I didn't really know Edna that well. I got to meet her in the last couple of weeks as she was palliative and got the privilege of going in and praying with her and, and talking with her about the Lord. And, and uh, her daughter, Darlene, had led her to the Lord, and she was now praying every day. And it was just a wonderful time. But I said, I didn't really get to know her. I said, but you know what? I said, I can tell you as I said, I'll bet Edna was not a really nice person some days. I said, I know that. How do I know that? Because I know I was not a very nice person. And I know you all have days when you're not very nice. Why? Because you're human beings. Hello? And I said, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. God doesn't judge any of us based on our worst day. Hello? He doesn't. But I got news flash for you. When you sit back there smugly because you just helped somebody who's 
homeless on the street or you, you know, you took some, you know, person in and gave them a good meal or you, you know, you didn't yell at the person who cut you off in traffic and you pat yourself on the back and say, I'm such a good person. You know, God doesn't judge you on your best day either. In fact, he doesn't judge you based on you at all. He judges you based on the work of Jesus Christ. Are you hearing me? And it doesn't matter what my, bat, uh, my worst day is or my best day is. God judges me purely on the merits of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Okay. So, if that's the gospel, then we have a liberty as being divine sons and daughters of God, and we're certainly not orphans. So stop living like one. Are you hearing me? Stop living like one. Stop living trying to garner God's approval and more and more everybody else's approval. I'm nice to people, not because I want to earn their approval, but because that's what a Christian should do. God's been nice to me, so I'm nice to other people. See how that works? But... I don't need them to approve me. Christ already has, right? And, I, and when you get a hold of that and you're able to love people because Christ first loved you, you can love them better than when you're trying to earn their approval because you're not even thinking about that anymore. You're just doing it because Jesus did it for you. I can do it for them. And when you get an absolute a hold of all that Jesus did for you, then you're motivated to do lots of wonderful things for him, and at no point does it change your standing with God. It doesn't. You're still in the same place, loved and adored and cherished by him, his son or his daughter. It's not a multi-level marketing company. There isn't a, a pastor tier and an elder tier and a deacon tier, and as you climb the tiers, right, you get, you get more points or awards or diamond level or whatever, and then one day you get a bigger mansion than everybody else. Come on. Where do we get this stuff from? Certainly not in the Bible, right? It's not in the Bible. But doesn't the Bible say there's rewards? Sure, there's rewards. There's rewards. But I got news for you. I don't think the rewards are based on your doing. I think the rewards are based on your being. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I think the war rewards when you stand in the presence of God are doled out based on how well you just let him love you. It isn't going to be based on I did this, 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 and this. And even if those do play into work, it's because I did them from my place as a beloved son or daughter, not trying to earn anything from him. And he's able to lavish more on some people because some people just are so aware that they're adored and loved by him and they can just receive. Are you hearing me this morning? All right. So he's uh, halfway through his message this morning. Praise God. All right. <laughs> what I actually want to talk about today are this. That was a pretty good preamble, wouldn't you say? Three promises by God's grace afforded to us as sons and daughters in that passage, Galatians chapter 4 that we just read. There are three, three things that are there woven into that passage for us. First, there's this. Uh, when God redeems us, 
He secures us forever. We're safe. We are sa we're family. He never forgets or forsakes his children. Maybe I should put this up on the screen. So the first one is security, right? The second one is intimacy, right? What else is afforded to us as from this passage tells us by grace? A deep, personal, satisfying relationship with a heavenly father who knows us thoroughly, yet knows us thoroughly, knows everything about you, even the worst thoughts you have, knows you thoroughly, and yet loves you continually and who promises to protect and provide for you. And thirdly, prosperity. Three promises in that passage we're going to look at. Security, intimacy, and prosperity. We become Christ's uh, brothers and sisters, if you will. We become joint heirs, the Bible says, with us. All things. Everybody say all things are afforded to us. We're not orphans, begging on the streets, nowhere to call home. We're part of a family, a royal family, whose father is king and provi who provides for his children. Amen? Security, intimacy, prosperity. Let's look at those real quick here this morning. Security, you are safe. The greatest threat in any of our lives is our sin but not because sin will take us to hell. It's already been paid for by Christ. How many know your sin, past, present, and future, is taken by Christ, right? Aren't you glad for that? So when I sin tomorrow, right, I don't have to go and do a whole mess of exercises like I used to in the, as a Catholic, go to the priest and do all my penance, my acts of penance. No, 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 it's all taken care of already by Christ. So then if that's true, then how does sin still threaten me. It threatens me because it, it gets in the way of my relationship with the Father. So when I'm, uh, if I let a sin into my life, then it becomes a, a, a barrier to intimacy with the Father. And what, how that throws off my security is all of the misgivings that I start having now about my life. How many know what I'm talking about? And so we start thinking I don't measure up. We start thinking like an orphan. Sin is something that an orphan does and gets bound up by. But a son or daughter of the king is no longer an orphan. So when we mess up, we say, well, my dad's got it. Thank you, Father. Right? Now, Paul anticipated that there would be those who would take advantage of this. And he even said in Scripture, does this mean we should sin so that God's grace could abound all the more? That's what Rasputin taught. Go out and sin. And then you experience greater levels of grace. Paul answered that in Scripture. He said, no, far be it from me. He said, I died to sin. When did I die to sin? When Jesus died on the cross. And he took my sin with him woof, on the cross. So it's no longer me that lives. It's Christ that lives in me, Paul says. Right? Are you hearing me this morning? And so my appetite for sin, my desire for sin, if I'm living as a son or a daughter, should dissipate. The appetite for sin is the sign of an orphan. Are you catching this this morning? All right? Now, just because sin is in my life and, and punishment's been taken by God doesn't mean God can't discipline me. How many have ever been disciplined by the Lord? I have. I've had times when, and usually the form of discipline from, the God, from God, only all he has to do is just say something to me. 
Like, I'll, you know, I've, I've had moments when I acted selfish or I acted this and God just has to say to me, and at least the way he speaks to me, he usually has a little layer of sarcasm in it. God can be sarcastic? I think so. He looks at me and he says, oh, I that, bet that felt better. And me, I'm stuck in my spirit by the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, you know, I've told somebody what I actually thought of them, and God says, oh, I bet that felt better. Oh, I'm being disciplined by the Lord. That hurts. Oh, and I have to go back and repent to the person. How many have ever experienced that? Is it only me that he speaks to a little bit of sarcasm like that? That's how, it, that's how I get it. Maybe it's my personality. He knows that I'll hear it loudest if he uses that tone with me. But, but that's what, what happens. And then I go back and I got to repent for being such a, a, a mean person or a terrible person, you know. <laughs> but the reality is God's going to discipline you. Why? Because you're his son or his daughter. That's what the scripture teaches us. To endure hardship. As discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? So sometimes in our journey, we end up in hardship and God's trying to get something out of us. He's trying to twist something, pull it out of us. And the sooner we'll submit to him, the faster we can get through the lesson and get on to the next thing. I remember it was Graham Cook who said, you never fail any test in God. You just keep getting the same test over and over again until you pass. So if you don't like the test that you're in, then, then learn it. So you don't have to experience it over and over again. Are you hearing me? All right. Uh, And then finally, I love what Bill Johnson says. He says, in Christ, we have to understand we're unpunishable. You're unpunishable in Christ. And I've had people say, come on, Pastor, 